Well, today we are continuing our series in the Psalms with Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Thank you. Good morning, Current. Thanks, guys. It's really been fun to be with you guys for the last few weeks. I've got two more after this, so thanks for welcoming me here so warmly. Uh, the psalm that was just read is very short. It's very simple. Uh, if you wanted to open up a Bible or Bible app and follow along, we're going to be hanging out there in Psalm 131 today. Uh, it's a psalm that could almost fit like in an old school tweet, right? It's so brief uh, that this psalm is one of those that would just be easy to just breeze past and miss the truth of this text. And we'd also, if we did that, breeze past it because it's small, because it's short, we'd also demonstrate one of the problems that this text is trying to address. Uh, I think if we pause and look closely, though, we'll find something special here in Psalm 131. In our busy lives, we are constantly bombarded with messages and media. Uh, think about your life, your phone, YouTube, TikTok, TikTok, Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Apple+, ESPN+. Why does everything have a plus is a question I'm wondering now. I don't know what happened in Silicon Valley world. We had to put a plus on everything, but pluses are everywhere. Uh, we have so many voices fighting for our attention. Again, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, threads, uh, 10,000 new podcasts that you have to listen to. And don't forget about work or school. We have email, Slack, Discord, other programs and apps that you need to pay attention to. I recognize here that some of you work for startups or companies, and I didn't mention your company. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> there are too many new products to keep track of, too many voices, too much noise. In this busy and loud world, it's very easy to miss the point of a psalm like Psalm 131. And it's a, tech that, it's a text that really describes a profound countercultural way of living. Psalm 131 describes a contrast, a, a counter, a differing way of living. Can you see it? Can you hear it? It's small. It's quiet. Uh, what Psalm 131 shows is what the soul of a person who has encountered and walked with God looks like. It's a picture of a strong relationship with God in a chaotic world. This is a snapshot of what living in the kingdom of God should look like. Uh, it should look like for disciples of Jesus. If you're familiar with the teaching of Jesus or his life, he might have referred to this kind of living as like mustard seed living, the smallest of seeds easily overlooked. Maybe some of us have heard about the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Anyone heard of Elijah? Uh, he served God's people in, the time, in this time of very noisy, loud voices. Competing religions and gods, voices demanding attention, voices demanding worship. And one time, Elijah found himself discouraged in this environment. So God called him to the wilderness to speak to him. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11 through 12, uh, we read this. I'm going to read from the King James Version because it's, it's really beautiful. It says this, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And that is where God met Elijah. 
Not in the activity, not in the noise, but in the stillness, in the smallness. In the kind of, this is the kind of countercultural experience that Psalm 131 is beckoning us into. Stillness, silence, smallness. Uh, there's an author, he's a, he's a counselor, his name's David Paulson, and uh, he has this way of explaining the Psalms that I think is really, really interesting and cool in his writing. And he does this by uh, contrasting them with something he calls anti-Psalms. So what Paulson does is he takes a psalm, and then he basically writes like the opposite of what that psalm teaches. Uh, you could do this yourself. Like if you're ever like, I don't really know what this means. Just like write an opposite version of the psalm. And in doing so, though, it highlights this contrast, and it brings out often the meaning of an original psalm. So you've heard Psalm 131. We've heard it read. Here's my best attempt at an anti-Psalm 131. Let me read them both for you one more time. Psalm 131, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. In the anti-Psalm poem written by me. Um, oh me, I am very wonderful. I have a great vision for my life. I daily dream and imagine possibilities. Great and marvelous things I will do. But I am anxious. Surrounded by noise, I am like a hungry infant left alone, like a needy child, I always cry for more. People, you are your only hope, both now and forevermore. What God has given us in Psalm 131 is a picture of an alternative way of living. David is opening up his soul and giving us a peek inside, and in it we find this, this glimpse of a soul that's been satisfied by God. But this satisfaction, it doesn't come naturally. It's not intuitive or easy. And so today I want to offer five things that we're going to need to choose in our lives if we're going to have the kind of quiet and calm soul and the intimate experience with God that Psalm 131 describes. Okay, so five things that we're going to need to choose. And the first of those is humility over pride. Humility over pride. Psalm 131, again, verse 1, the original, says this, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. There's humility there. The anti-psalm is like this. Hear the pride. Oh, me, I am really wonderful. I have a great vision for my life. I daily dream and imagine possibilities. Great and marvelous things I will do. Uh, I live in San Francisco, and one of the largest events in the city where I live is this conference called Dreamforce. Uh, had anyone ever been to Dreamforce before? Anybody? You guys know what Dreamforce is? Well, Salesforce, you know, it's the largest employer in San Francisco, and Dreamforce is this massive event they put on that rivals Pride as the biggest annual event in the city. And so you'll, if you live in San Francisco, it's this day when you're like, why is traffic terrible? And you're like, it's Dreamforce. Um, Pre-pandemic, on the day before Dreamforce, SFO had its busiest day ever as an airport. Busiest day in its entire history. As people come from all over the world to hear compelling speakers, to network, to attend company events and concerts and parties, uh, the BART system had one of its busiest riderships of all time. Maybe you've participated, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I just want to say here, I'm not criticizing uh, Salesforce, the company actually uh, contributes to the common good in really meaningful ways, there's lots to admire. Uh, but it's the name of the conference that I want to highlight today, Dream Force. Uh, it's intentionally chosen, right? so descriptive of the spirit of this age. It's the perfect name for a conference in our culture because it aligns with the messages we're bombarded with every day. Dream. You should have a compelling vision of your future or your company's future. Don't think small, think big. What is your dream for your life? Force. You can make it happen. 
the barrier between your present reality and your dream can be overcome by your effort. You just need to stay inspired, work hard, push harder, stay hungry, look at that vision board every day. You have a dream, you're willing to make it happen, you're willing to force this vision into reality, you, you know, and guess what? We have some things to sell you to help you get there. Welcome to the way Western culture works today. Dream bigger, work harder, do something more significant. Don't stop until you get there. These are the messages of our world, and I think we have so internalized them that most of us don't even detect a problem. But what is the problem? Why shouldn't we dream? Why shouldn't we work hard until we get what we want? And I want to offer today that the problem is subtle, but it's significant. Because it's not really about having a dream or the presence of a dream or needing force or hard work and effort to make something happen. The question is whose dream are you chasing? And what force are you relying on to see it come to fruition? Is it yours or is it God's? This is where we see the issues of pride and humility beginning to really make a difference and matter. Pride, biblically speaking, is simply just putting yourself at the center of things. It's making yourself the center of your reality and your life and your way of uh, interpreting everything. And humility, biblically speaking, is putting God and others at the center. And if you are pursuing a vision of your life that isn't God's, I want to say today, it's pride. If you're living a life by your own rules established by anyone other than God, biblically speaking, that's pride. And when our lives are driven by pride, they will never, no matter how successful we are, lead to lasting contentment or peace. We will always be chasing something else, something better, something new, something bigger, some new dream. I really think about this sometimes. I think the, the, even the word self-fulfillment is a bit of an oxymoron. We cannot fulfill ourselves with ourselves. And if you read this psalm, the author of the psalm doesn't begin this prayer with a prayer to himself. He, he doesn't look inward for fulfillment or vision. He looks outward to God. He looks out, and the psalm begins by addressing God, saying, Lord. And the anti-psalm, right, he looks inward, and he says, me. Sounds familiar. And this kind of prideful, self-driven, self-seeking, self-motivated life cannot lead to a calm and quiet soul. If we're driven by pride, I really believe we won't bear good fruit in our lives or in our souls. Uh, I have a 19-year-old who goes to college. I recently heard someone in higher ed ruminate kind of about uh, rising levels of, uh, really like epidemic levels of anxiety amongst college students who are entering college. And they were wondering aloud like causes of this. And they said, I wonder if our students are so anxious because we have told them they can do anything, they can be anything, as long as they themselves just work hard enough to get there. Can you see that in our culture? Can you feel that maybe even in your own life? If we buy into this thinking that we are the only one, we are the ones who need to have the dream and we are the ones who need to provide the means of making those dreams happen, then I think we end up in two places. It's very simple, very obvious. We either fail or we succeed in that task. Our dreams might be professional dreams of our career. They might be relational dreams of a spouse or marriage. They might be health goals or financial goals. Our dreams for ourselves might be any kind of thing. But as we pursue them, we're either going to fail or we're going to succeed. We're either going to meet those dreams or we're not, right? Uh, and the path of failure, if we go down that path in which we have a self-made dream and we struggle with that and we begin to fail, we feel anxiety. We feel fear, even self-loathing. We're not meeting our goals and we're getting discouraged by that. We try then to distract ourselves from these feelings. 
We begin to self-medicate, drink too much, uh, drug, drug use, relational, uh, you know, all kinds of relationships. We might eat too much, binge on social media, obsessed with sports or celebrities, distract, 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 anything that can keep us from facing our fear and our, this reality of we might be failing in our dream. And ultimately, I think when we fail, we begin to feel depressed, anxious. But if we're the center of everything, if this is our dream and our force is the problem, then the problem, it wasn't our issue, right? It must have been the goal. We must have had a wrong dream. We're just aiming at the wrong thing. We didn't really understand ourselves. Must have been something else. So we make new goals, new dreams, and the cycle continues and continues again and again. And I think most of us find, us find ourselves in this place sometimes, anxious, tired, burned out from chasing our own dreams. We're living the anti-Psalm 131. But then on the other hand, some of us might be successful. Some of us will win the game. Some of us will realize our dreams. We'll experience uh, winning in, in our self-made vision. And we do everything, right? We outwork, we outstudy, we put in longer hours. Maybe we're benefited by some luck or by some social position. But someday, some of us will find out that we're successful. And if you, like me, live here and you're around some successful people, sometime you realize that they're just as broken as everybody else. They've accomplished their dreams, and guess what? They're just as unfulfilled and broken as everyone else. I just saw the Oppenheimer movie this weekend. Everybody sees that. That guy succeeded, and yet he's not satisfied. They can, people like who have succeeded, they can hide it in wealth. They can cover it with accomplishments, material things, but they have the same neuroses and anxieties. Successful people, they, they cope with more expensive uh, drugs. With, they distract with wealth. They compensate with ex more expensive things. Uh, I'm thinking of a friend of mine I, I was with recently. And, um, he's been a friend for years, but he was kind of telling me his story. And he was someone who was accomplished. Basically, he said everything he ever dreamed of by the time he was 40. In his words, like he had everything. And he was never been unhappier. And, and the reason that was, and I, I want us to catch this, is that we cannot fulfill in ourselves what God designed us for, to be fulfilled in him. We cannot fulfill in ourselves what God designed for us to be fulfilled in him. And for many of us, it's been said before, our greatest fear shouldn't be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really ultimately matter. Whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're seeking, if it is not driven and inspired by God, empowered by God, if ultimately, it ultimately will not fulfill you and will not even matter in the end. So what then is the alternative to that, to pursuing our own vision, our own dream with our own force? I, I wanna offer that's humility and a right relationship with God. Lowering ourselves, listening to him, submitting our dreams to his dreams, submitting our will to his will, giving him authority over how we live, moving out of the driver's seat of our own life and moving into the back seat. Not even shotgun, okay? Go in the back. Because I think it's in humility that we'll actually find peace freedom and fulfillment, that thing, those things we're really longing for, and maybe even something more. It's interesting, Jesus teaches about this in Matthew 23. He says this, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's really interesting, the author of this psalm is David, whom God took from obscurity as a, as a son of a shepherd and used as a famous poet, as a mighty warrior. Uh, God made David king over the entire nation, 
And, and I hesitate even to say that because then I know we like judo all this where it's like, let's be humble so then God makes us awesome, you know, and, and I, that, that's not what I want us to do. God promises this, but, but, I, but I, he does promise that the humble will be exalted. But I think we have to recognize that that exaltation, that honoring is not necessarily in this world. It might be in the world to come. But definitely for sure, God's dreams for David were surely different than David's dreams for himself. If you think about a shepherd boy in rural Palestine, uh, whatever God was dreaming for him was definitely different. In his case, it might have been bigger. It definitely is different. And I think God's dreams for us are probably different than our own. At least we ought to submit that as a possibility to God. And I hope each of us wrestle with what God might be dreaming for us. It might be small in your eyes, it might be big and overwhelming, but the truly humble person doesn't care if seeking God's vision for their life ever leads to worldly praise or significance. No, they're satisfied, their souls are satisfied with God alone. Okay, what else do we need to choose if, we're gonna, if we want the kind of soul and life depicted in Psalm 131? Let me offer a second thing. We need to choose quietness over noise. Quietness over noise. Psalm 131, verse 2 begins, but I have calmed and quieted myself. And the anti-psalm says this, but I am anxious and surrounded by noise. To live like Psalm 131 is calling us to, we must choose quietness over noise. The psalmist David talks about this as like an action that he takes, something that he must do. Uh, to live the way that God wanted David to live, uh, the way that God called David to live, and he wants him to live, he, David needs to respond, he needs to do something. He must actively calm and quiet himself. It's an action, it's a practice. So how does one do that? How do we practically calm and quiet ourselves? Uh, or as other translations of this text read, how do we calm and quiet our souls? Uh, I think this could look a number of ways. Uh, however we do this starts and grows out of the kind of humility that we've already established earlier, humble practices that put God at the center. Uh, and there's a number of practices that can help us calm and quiet our souls. It's one of the things I love about the Christian tradition. It's filled with spiritual practices related to calming and quieting our souls. It's like tons of examples. There's prayer, there's solitude, there's meditation, there's fasting, there's uh, personal retreats, there's intentional silence, there's pilgrimage, there's Sabbath. Uh, and one of the things, you know, we think about things like mindfulness or meditation or some kind of modern or like Eastern practice, but really Christians have been doing these for thousands of years, like literally thousands of years. And Western Christianity has often lost the value of them when we drank the Kool-Aid of this like loud and fast culture, but it doesn't mean that those practices haven't been there all along available for us. Uh, for sure, there's some differences between Christian practices of calming and quieting our souls and like Eastern and modern practices. Uh, if you're familiar with any of that, Eastern modern practices usually call people to like eliminate uh, or quiet the self or sometimes become the opposite, hyper aware of themselves. Like think about how you feel, think about what you're, you know, all those things. Either way, it revolves around the self, either the elimination of the self or being comfortable and aware of oneself. And I don't think either of those are bad things, I'm not saying that necessarily, but the Christian tradition is different. It's not just a call to quiet the self, to become aware of the self or to empty ourself. It's a call to be filled with God and his truth. And this is where the Christian tradition kind of diverges from some of these other traditions. We don't just need to get away from the world, be calm and quiet with ourselves and with the universe. No, we need to calm and quiet ourselves to hear God, to be filled with his spirit and his truth. So instead of thinking of things like meditation and prayer and silence and solitude as just turning down like the noise of the world, instead of just thinking of them like that, we need to think of them like simultaneously being like turning up the noise of God so we can hear from him. We empty ourselves, we quiet ourselves to be filled by him, to hear from him. 
In quietness, we ruminate on his life-giving word. We meditate on his truth. We stop speaking and we begin to listen to him. You think of Jesus, he did this many different ways. The Bible says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. The Old Testament describes people like Isaac as going out in the evening to meditate. The very book of Psalms we're reading, this entire book, 150 different Psalms are a tool for meditation and for prayer. And there's so much of this in the Christian scriptures and the tradition, and it's a real bummer really that, not just that modern people have like rejected the beliefs of Christianity and the, the, the theology of historic Christianity, but that we've also lost and rejected these spiritual practices that God has given us to know him and to live with calm, quiet, fulfilled souls. So as we seek to live in humility with God at the center, we submit not just our dreams and our will, we also take up these new practices, these practices that he's given us to know him and to rest in him. We actively seek and practice calming and quieting our souls. All right, I want to take the next two things that we need to choose and like join them together. So I have two points here, but I'm going to give them to you at the same time. Uh, number three, we need to choose contentment over desire. And number four, we need to choose dependence over isolation. So contentment over desire and dependence over isolation, number three and number four. Uh, Psalm 131 verse two continues, and it says this. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. And the anti-psalm says this, I am like a hungry infant left alone. Like a needy child, I always cry for more. Okay, has anyone in here ever held a nursing child when you aren't their mother? Has anybody done this? Any guys like remembering a moment here? Anyone held an infant or like a newborn like niece or nephew when they want to eat? What is that child like? Yes, they cry. Uh, but they often become frantic trying to find something to nurse on. Little babies will nuzzle and latch on to anything. Even people and things that can't feed them. I have personal experience. Any guy ever hold a baby without your shirt on? They will try to find something that, to satisfy them, even things that never can. The metaphor that David uses here in Psalm 131 is vivid. He is describing his soul like a content child, resting calmly in the arms of his mother a child that is satisfied and snuggles close to the one who has provided for him. But it's more than that. It's a closeness because of something that the mother can, it's not just a closeness because of something the mother has given them. It's a bond built on something that the mother has already given to him, already been provided and satisfied, full of love, full of delight. What an interesting and apt description of the Christian life with God. Think about it, a newborn baby is only aware of their hungers and desires, and their mother is at first just a way to get what they need. I think the same is true often with us and God. We come to the end of ourselves, we realize that God has something we need, and so we go to him in desperation. Uh, remember that friend I mentioned who had everything he wanted before he was 40? Um, it was deeply unhappy. Uh, by the time he was 40, he was uh, unfulfilled, even though at every external measure he was successful, and this led him to alcoholism, uh, to a number of things. He hit rock bottom when his drinking started to really negatively affect his relationship with his kids. And he needed to change, he needed something different. So he humbly went to AA, surrounded himself with people he would never have been in a social circle with, who admitted every week that they needed help from a divine power. And this led my friend back to church, to the church I was at in San Francisco, and ultimately back to God. And he came to know God only because he was desperate for help. We too might come to God seeking forgiveness, needing purpose, wanting peace, desiring comfort, longing for freedom from guilt or shame, crying out for rescue. And so we latch onto God because of these desires, because of our needs, and he provides. 
Day after day, meal after meal, God provides for us in our need and we grow to trust him, to love him. And slowly, this maturing of a relationship happens. I've witnessed it in my own life and the lives of others. And this relationship doesn't end with like independence from God. David doesn't describe his soul as like a young guy that just went off to college. He doesn't say that. He says he's like an infant that's satisfied. But at the same time his soul has matured, he is still a needy child, but he goes to his mother not just because of what he can get from her, but because he loves and cherishes her. She has provided what he needed to survive. Her body has literally saved and sustained him, and now he clings to her in delightful rest. I love that imagery and and how well it maps on to God's ideal relationship with us. We come initially because of need and we are satisfied, but we find in him a deeper contentment, a deeper rest. Love is born and we find a rest that endures. And I think this could be a useful image to meditate upon in calmness and quiet for each of us this week, God as our nursing mother. And what we see here in this text here is that God has moved, uh, that David has moved from being entirely driven by desire to a soul that is content in relationship with God. We see a person who would not survive in isolation but has learned to depend and trust in the God who's provided for him day after day after day. What a beautiful image, restful contentment over loud desires, healthy dependence over dangerous isolation. These are principles that should guide our life with God and our interactions with others. And lastly, if we're going to live with the kind of soul that David depicts in Psalm 131, we must choose God over, and I'm going to leave this as like a fill in the blank for you, but whatever it means for you, God over everything. Whatever you trust and hope in instead of him, this is where you get to put in your own note. Psalm 131 ends by saying, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And the anti-psalm here would be, people, you are your only hope, both now and forevermore. The truth is, for each of us, apart from God, our trust might be in ourselves, it might be in our accomplishments, or our bank accounts, or our good morals, or how you're a just person, or it could be something outside of yourself, something you have chosen. You might trust in a different religious system, uh, or Western philosophy and science, but it is ultimately a worldview that you've picked. And so ultimately, you are responsible, you have chosen it. You allow it to define and dictate reality, and for many of us, Uh, I think we've cobbled together a worldview and a personal religion that's like a mixture of sources and authorities. Do you guys know what the Golden Corral is? Does anyone have the courage to admit they've eaten at a Golden Corral? Can I get a couple hints? Thank you. Okay. Don't be ashamed. I'd be a little ashamed. I've gone once, literally once. Well, Golden Corral calls itself America's number one buffet and grill. Uh, I'm not sure if it's like the largest, but it is very representative of American individualistic values and tastes. If you're at a Golden Corral, uh, you can have some good old uh, American biscuits and gravy, but if you want some Chinese food, you can get some egg rolls. Uh, If you want some Italian food, you can get some spaghetti. Uh, If you want some Mexican food, you can get a taco. You just throw and mash up on your plate whatever you want. Now, I think us sophisticated Bay Area people, we would never lower ourselves to eat at places like this, you know. We wouldn't put all that together in a single meal. No, we just long to live in a walkable neighborhood where all of those choices are available to us. Or deliverable, so that we can eat whatever we want in a single week. I actually think we're not that different, it's just a different time frame. What Golden Corral offers in a single space, Uber Eats offers in an app, right? 
We want options and we want to get it what we want, however we want, whenever we want it. And this approach to life, it's not just about how we approach food, but it's also often how we approach the most important things like faith, about what we believe about ultimate and important things. And most of us Americans and Western people, if you've lived here a while, you've concocted religious beliefs at a buffet. Want a little bit of Buddhism, but not the part about like abandoning love. Uh, I want a little Darwinism to explain where we came from, but not like the eugenics. I don't want that stuff, the racist stuff. Maybe a little pluralism, because I don't want to think anyone else's choices are wrong. A little bit from Plato, but I like the idea of a soulmate. But I don't want the classism and like the chauvinism. I don't want that. So we all build our little worldview plates. Little of this, little of that, skip that. Uh, I think I could fit this right in here as well. And we think somehow that makes us wise. We think this buffet-style religion is the most trustworthy. But I want to ask you today, have you ever been to like a great restaurant? Like a place where there's like a set tasting prefix menu established by a great chef like Chez TJ, Atelier Crane, French Laundry. I've never been to any places, but I do have a friend who's a chef. Or if you've never been to like a great restaurant like that, have you ever been to a friend's grandma, a friend's grandma or an auntie who can just like cook better than anyone? You don't walk into those places and tell them what you want. You don't pick from a menu. They know better than you. You come and you trust them. Your job isn't to pick, it's to receive what they, the master chef or cook makes, and to enjoy it. I want to say today that I think the same is true of faith. We can cobble together our own plates at a buffet, or we can go to the most reliable and renowned chef. Where is your hope and trust? Uh, Henry Ford, the automaker, a long time ago, once said, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said, faster horses. Or Steve Jobs, our patron saint here in Silicon Valley. Uh, He said likewise, very similarly, you can ask customers what they want and then try to give that to them. But by the time you get it built, they'll want something new. And both Henry Ford and Steve Jobs are pointing out the limits and the fickleness of our desires, of our self-knowledge, of what we want and need. Sometimes we don't know what we want, right? Sometimes what we think we want changes. We are ultimately unreliable. And it's not just about food and cars and iPhones but it's about much more larger and significant things. And so consider today, where is your ultimate hope? In whom do you trust? Is it a golden corral, Uber Eats, buffet religion, or is it the God who made you, who died for you, the God who offers to you the humble, a calm, and mature life? Uh, For all of us here today, I want us to wrestle with and look at Jesus as the highest example of the kind of soul that Psalm 131 laid out for us this morning. I want us to read and to study his life, how he lived and how he taught and what his practices were. And I want to ask you to look to Jesus, not just because he's the best example, but because he also says that he is the means by which God allows us to enter this kind of life we read about in Psalm 131 as well. It is through him that we can access the life that God offers us. Uh, Philippians 2, chapters five, or chapter, five, or chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, it says this about Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I think if we are honest with ourselves, whether we've been a Christian our whole lives or just exploring faith, most of us have lived or are living some version of that anti-Psalm 131 life. We've been self-seeking, we've been prideful, and with consequence, we are anxious. We have, set to, we have set out to have our desires met outside of God and his standards and his plans for us. We have busied and distracted ourselves, and today we find ourselves often living with the fruit of those choices of pride, noise, selfish desires, isolation. We're tired, we're anxious, and we're overwhelmed. And the solution for all of us, I believe, is to come back to God or to come to him for the first time, to come in humility and submit ourselves in repentance and faith, to practice these things that, that the Lord offers us, these practices. Things like repentance, which is where we change our minds. That's what repentance means. When we change our direction to say, God, I've been going this way, but now I'm going to be going this way. We're choosing to go your way, not my way. Practice faith, which is where we trust and hope in God instead of ourselves. And lastly, and I think this is really critical, that all of what God offers us can only be in and found in Jesus. And I know that's like a sticking point. It's a stumbling block. But God has designed it in a way that it is through Jesus' death on your behalf and his resurrection to life that really happened that you and I, that each of us are able to receive this promised new kind of living that you don't do on your own, that you do with his force. You don't have to understand it all, but it all starts and ends with Jesus. We come to faith through Jesus and we follow him as disciples in faith. And he will lead us to a rest that can never be taken away from us. And so today, if you find yourself living that Psalm 131, the anti-Psalm 131 life, and you want to enter or more, full, more fully enter into that God's dream for you, into that Psalm 131 life, to join in humility and repentance and faith today, just join me in praying. God, I totally confess that way too often I am driven and motivated by pride, by anxiety, by fear of failure, by stress. And God, I want to be fully submitted to you. I want to come to you open-handed, receive from you what you have to offer, hear from you what my dream, your dream for my life should be. My posture would be open to receive, asking how can I obey? How can I continue, Lord, what you offer? God, I pray that for each of us today who, who longs for that calm, quiet life, Lord, that you would meet us today, that you would speak to us, and that you would draw us to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.